Turn to Luke 9. We saw what Dennis read in the last verse there in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and then Andy reminded us of it. The day that uh, Paul had written, in those days that Paul had written, there were the Jewish people, there were the Greek philosophers, and then there was the Roman Empire that was ruling the world. The governing principles of the Jews was light. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Uh, Jesus is the light of the world. Of course, the Jews, by and large, did not accept him as their Messiah. The governing principle uh, for the Greeks was knowledge. Their philosophy was the reigning uh, thought of the world, and uh, their influence, the Greek influence from Alexander the Great on through, there's language, and then the thought of life was the governing principle of the Greek people, the Hellenistic uh, world. And then the Romans, uh, the glory of the Roman Empire was key, was that governing sense that they had. And so we see here that Jesus is the one solution for all peoples of all time. God who said, let light shine out of darkness is shown in our hearts to give the light, there you go for the Jews, of the knowledge for the Greeks, of the glory of God for the Romans, all of it is found in the face of Jesus Christ, our hope for the world. Who is Jesus? That's what we've been trying to answer or looking through as Luke has gathered this section of Scripture uh, together, the events in the life of uh, Christ. Uh, what we'll find today is he is spoken from the cloud by God the Father. He is my son, my chosen one. Now you listen to him. Uh, we're at t verse 28. We're going to look 28 through 36 this morning. Last week we closed with verse 27. I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And we went over a list of uh, uh, ideas from different co commentators and theologians and uh, people what is that talking about when they see the kingdom of God? Uh, some would hold that 70 AD when Jerusalem is uh, destroyed by the Romans and the temple is torn down. Uh, others, the spread of the gospel in the book of Acts as they see the kingdom spreading throughout uh, eventually to the Gentile world in the second half of Acts through Paul's ministry. Some would say that the kingdom came when uh, the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost. They would choose that as wh what, Paul, uh, what Luke is specifically pointing out as Jesus teaches. 
Uh, others, the resurrection and the ascension of Christ uh, to the right hand after the death. Um, and here's, uh, again, that it reminds me of the phrase, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are not the main things. Are the main things, I'm sorry. The, plain, the main things are, not, are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Uh, and so that we know this understanding uh, until they see that we don't know there's confusion about what this is. Therefore, it's not a main thing. It's not a plain thing. If it's not a plain thing, then we know it's not a main thing. God's word is plain and clear for all the Essentials of the faith, this is, there are things that we have a hard time understanding. Without declaring for sure, without, in one sense, trying to influence you, you study it for yourself. It seems to me the proximity and the context, the transfiguration, is at least the beginning of this seeing the kingdom of God uh, come. Uh, after saying earlier, verse 27, now eight days later, this transfiguration happens. They saw the kingdom of God come into power, at least these three did, with the Lord Jesus on the mountaintop. Uh, I quoted R.C. Sproul last week. Here's R.T. France. He says, there's no need to be specific in any and all these ways, and no doubt in others too, those with eyes to see could have perceived before they died that God had powerfully taken control of events, of uh, the events, and was working His purpose out in history. So, uh, let's read together uh, ver- verse twenty-eight to 30- verses twenty-eight to thirty-six. Then we'll pray, and we will look through this. Let me just say that uh, there's no. Uh, earthly way to explain what the disciples witness in this episode. Luke does his best, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to convey to us and our limited ability of understanding what takes place. Beginning of verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, He took with him Peter, John, and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter... And those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. 
And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come to you this morning. Doing our best to imagine and yet approaching you and admitting our limited ability to grasp your glory. Even as your spirit has uh, written it down for us. Lord, we seek to understand, we seek to know. And we thank you that you accommodate yourself to us in our uh, finite state. You bring words to us through analogy, analogy, through relating these events in ways that we might get a grasp. We might understand who you are, who our Lord Jesus is. That we might understand who we are. So we might understand also our great need, our great dependence upon you, our heavenly provider, upon Christ, our holy Savior. And we ask that you would fill your people with your spirit, our heavenly indweller, Father, that we might be changed this morning. As Christ was transfigured, transformed on the mountain, Lord, would you continue to do your transforming work in your people and in those who are not yet Trusting in Christ, would your convicting spirit break through their stony hearts this morning? And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, uh, Luke records a version, Matthew records a version, Mark records a version. I'll be bringing some of what Mark and Matthew, uh, add to the story as we talk through this uh, passage. In fact, in John chapter 1, we beheld His glory, the glory of the everlasting Father, the glory of the Lord Jesus, the Word of God. Uh, Even John uh, alludes to this uh, in a sort of a tangentially way. also, here's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, the 
3 verses 16 to 18, Peter says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. You know, as Peter tells that story, as Peter records this, any skeptic would read that and say, whew, uh, what an incredible bunch of nonsense. These fanta- this fantastic story of what happened uh, on the holy mountain. But we who study God's word, God's word has shown itself to be true. Affirmed throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament, into our own lives. And so we trust and we know that it has been recorded as it happened here in these few verses. Uh, remember Peter's up and down history. Uh, in particular, recently, most recently, he has, has been to revealed to him. Flesh and blood had not revealed it to him, but God had revealed to him that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, and then in the next instance, when he, uh, Jesus says, I'm going to die, Peter says, no way, you're not going to die. The Lord Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Uh, so Peter's been up and down from the mountains of this re- revelation of truth that he was able to proclaim to the depths of failure and uh, abject despondency as Peter uh, opens his mouth before he thinks. And uh, it's helpful to me, I don't know about you, it's helpful to me as you see that Christian life is full of ups and downs, highs and lows. You know, there's some suggestion that maybe if we get to this particular level of Christian maturity, everything will kind of line out and it will be smooth sailing. Well, uh, I've not got there yet, I guess. Maybe you have. I've not arrived there yet. I can't really find it in Scripture. One day is up and then sometimes the next day is down. And so the Christian journey is oftentimes a struggle. Uh, as we live in a fallen world. Um, so why we need devotional books like streams in the desert, right? That, that coolness of the flowing uh, water to come to us in the time of the desert days, the dry days. A valley of vision, if you know that, the list of Puritan prayers. I was talking with someone just... Uh, the other day, uh, the other night, about I wish that they would identify who wrote those prayers. We got a long list of them at the beginning of the book, and then these magnificent, um, uh, uplifting prayers. They're such so devotional, and yet I don't know who did this one. I don't know who did that one. And, you know, it may be a mosaic of all of those Puritan writers, but it's such a encouragement in the midst of uh, these. Troubles. Corey's introduced us more and more we, uh, uh, to the Puritans. Uh, I think I even heard him quote Octavius Winslow last Sunday morning in Sunday school. Here's a quote from 
uh, Winslow, Octavius Winslow, one of the Puritans. He says, the Christian life is tortuous and checkered in its course. The royal path to glory is a diverse mosaic paved with stones of diverse lines. Today, it's a depth almost soundless. Tomorrow, a height almost scaleless. Uh, that's, is that your experience? Peter would help you to say, that's been my experience. And so it's an encouragement to us who are up and down at times. Hopefully the trend line is this way, but it's full of ups and downs as we make our journey to the celestial city. Verses 28 and 29, we have four men on the mountain. Uh, only Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, only Luke says Jesus' purpose here. Uh, after about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and they went up on the mountain to pray. Well, obviously, uh, Peter, John, and James uh, had less priority to prayer than Jesus did, but it, Jesus went up on the mountain to pray. Uh, Matthew and Mark don't uh, relate that to us. Uh, but uh, that's the purpose up the hill, probably not the ultimate purpose. And he was praying, verse 29, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Though my ESV says this is the transfiguration, Luke doesn't use the word transfiguration that Matthew and Mark do, but he was Matthew and Mark say he was transfigured before them. Same word that uh, Dennis read for us in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 18. We're being transformed into the image of Christ as we gaze into his face. We're not transformed by looking inside of ourselves. We're transformed by looking at the Christ and his glorious face, knowing who he is. Or... Uh, Paul writing to the Romans as he turns his corner of that long theological 11 chapters of theology, and then he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing uh, of our minds. So uh, the point is this shining whiteness, this, his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. What Matthew says is, no launderer could make this happen on earth. There's nobody, no soap, there's nothing that could make this happen from earth to emphasize the fact that this is a heavenly, heavenly white that has come down onto the mountain and uh, uh, into the clothes and the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit has inspired these words. Again, as I, as I mentioned uh, to accommodate our limited ability. You know, uh, God does that. He gives us analogies. He gives us pictures. The Lord, Psalm 104, the Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. Well, that's just helping us to see the, the, the immensity and the brightness of the light that, that surrounds the Lord God Almighty. 
Psalm 91, he protects us uh, with his feathers and with his wings. Well, you know, I thought our confession said the Lord doesn't have a body. God does not have a body. Say, well, yeah, of course he doesn't. The Lord's hand is not so short and his ears not so dull that he can't hear you. Well, wait, the Lord doesn't have ears. He doesn't have hands. He doesn't feathers and wings. No, it's accommodation to us to give us a picture of the infinite God that we finite beings struggle to understand and know about. I'm thankful to him. And so Jesus has changed. Here Luke is trying to express or explain as God reveals himself that Jesus is God himself. That's what's happening here. He's changed. His glory that has been concealed becomes his glory revealed for a very short time, the display of the glory of God in Christ. It wasn't true before he was transfigured. It wasn't true after he was transfigured. It was just for the moment that his glory was revealed. Uh, In fact, it's the glory, it's a reminder of his incarnation, what he knew before his incarnation. In John 17, when he prays, he says, glorify me now with the glory I had with you before the world uh, was. Jesus is the radiance of the glory. Of God, Hebrews chapter 1 says that. But this glory that he had before the world existed with the Father had been veiled by his humanity. He took on flesh. His glory wasn't gone. He always retained all of it. And yet it was veiled. Calvin says, here on the mountain is a temporary exhibition of his glory on earth. Peter didn't make it up. He says, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And as descriptive as Luke's words are here, as this passage is, it's still incomplete. The words only give us a sense. Some things are indescribable. June and I, our anniversary is in October, and we do our best to go somewhere to where we can see the leaves. And every time we come home from those trips to see the magnificent foliage or leaf peepers, whatever we are, I don't you know. Every time we come home, we're just disappointed by the pictures. Some things are just indescribable, right? I mean, you know... How often have you found yourself saying, well, you had to be there? Get struggling trying to explain to someone how, how great something is, and you can't do it. And they just kind of look at you and say, eh. You know, and you say, well, you had to be there. Some things are just indescribable. Well, this has been described for us, but the fullness of the glory of the Lord Jesus we'll see one day when we see him face to face. Peter didn't make it up. The transfiguration is revealing to us that Jesus is God in the flesh. His glory has been veiled. And there is being unveiled. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, right? We sing that at Christmas. Hail the incarnate deity. 
Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. God with us. And here in this moment, he temporarily or his glory is exhibited. Peter, John, James, they have this personal preview of what's to come uh, in his passion, in his death, burial, his resurrection, his ascension. They'll finally be culminated in a new heaven and a new earth, and they get this foretaste of glory divine, this inkling of what heaven will be like. And then verse 30, all of a sudden, there's not four men on the mountain. There's six men on the mountain. Verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him, Jesus, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Uh, A bridging of the Old Testament and the New Testament, bringing the Old Testament and the New Testament together. Moses and Elijah are seen talking with the Lord Jesus. Moses representing the law. Elijah, the greatest prophet. Jesus didn't come to do away with the law or the prophets. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And they find their fulfillment in him. And here is the new covenant king speaking with the giver of the law and the prophet. You know, it's amazing if, the, if Jewish people would only learn this story right here, they would see that they don't have to give up anything they've believed in the past. They just need to read to the end of the story. They don't have to give up their oldness. They just need to see that Christ fulfilled all of what it was that their faith was telling them was going to come. And it's only Luke who says right here what they were talking about. Notice, they spoke of his departure. That's the word exodus. Interesting, Moses talking to Jesus about exodus, speaking of his departure, the exodus of Jesus. He tried to explain it the week before, there in verses 21 and 22, eight days before when he says this man must suffer many things and he be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, killed and on the third day. He tried to explain that to his disciples. They could not really understand it about all the prospects that awaited for him when he finally gets to Jerusalem. Verse 44 and 45, we'll look at next week. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into hands of men, but they did not understand this saying, uh, and they were afraid to ask him about about it. Um, Dale Ralph Davis says, must have heartened Jesus tremendously that Moses and Elijah would talk with him about his exodus. 
the disciples wouldn't talk to him about suffering and death. If you've seen uh, the, not the oldest version, but the 1956 version of the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston on the mountain, you know, holding his hands up and God, of course, holding the waters up and the Jewish people in the Exodus, uh, being redeemed from Egypt and all those hundreds of years of slavery, uh, the result of the outstretched hand of God as Moses symbolizes that, uh, as Charlton Heston symbolizes that, the shedding of blood that made it possible in the Passover celebration uh, just prior to that. Well, Jesus was about to accomplish his exodus in Jerusalem, as Luke records it there, which he was about to accomplish, verse 20, 31, at Jerusalem. Jesus' exodus. Uh, in one sense, he's simply talking about his departure. That's what exodus means, his departure, departure from this world. But ultimately, more importantly, he was talking, uh, they were talking about another exodus. Uh, Jesus' exodus would be, as Moses' exodus, a freeing of the people. Not just his leaving earth, but a freeing of another people. As he leaves this world, dying, resurrected, ascending to the right hand, all who put their faith in him and his work will be set free. The hand of God will deliver them from the slavery of sin as they trust in Jesus Christ. Not from the slavery in Egypt, but from the slavery of sin. So it's another, a different exodus. The believers are set free. They're redeemed. And that redemption will be accomplished in Jerusalem. And he was about to accomplish that or fulfill that. And, I mean, I don't... Uh, we best cut Peter slack. But notice verse 32. Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. That's pretty amazing. They were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with them. This isn't the only time Peter, John, and James, they kind of have, you know, they, they, they get together and they get sleepy. Yeah, I'm sure the work was busy. But you remember the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, just as important of a time. But they're asleep. And when they fully wake up, they see his glory. And they see Moses and Elijah. You know, hopefully this was just kind of a stake in the ground for Moses, I mean for uh, Peter, John, and James, uh, an experience they could draw upon when they see Christ suffering, humiliated, crucified, that they can remember His splendor, His glory, and be encouraged in spite of the 
sufferings. Yet we know when that happens, all the disciples flee. They forsake him for the time being. They're about to see Jesus despised, humiliated, executed. They needed an assurance. They were given an assurance here that that, the suffering did not diminish his glory. Uh, His rejection would not restrict his reign uh, or tarnish his majesty. And so this transfiguration that is happening here on the mountain is really just a sneak preview of the glory of Christ. I have questions for Peter. Um, Probably won't matter when I get to see Peter. But how did you know it was Moses and Elijah? I mean, they they didn't have any pictures. You know, I once had a fella tell me that he knew he was okay. He had a terrible uh, wreck and he almost died in the hospital and he was not walking with the Lord, but he said, you know, Jesus came into his room one night and touched him on the leg and said, and so I came into visit and he said, I'm, I just want you to know Jesus came and told me I'm okay with him. He was telling me this after he got out of his house and I said, well, how do you know it was Jesus? He pointed to a picture on the wall. He looked just like that man right there. That was Jesus, it was a picture of Jesus. Moses, how'd you, I mean, uh, Peter, how'd you know it was Moses and Elijah? I don't know that they did. But we know it was Moses and Elijah. But Peter, what was it like to wake up, rub the sleep out of your eyes, and see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, and Moses and Elijah standing there with him? Uh, What we have for Mark, who recorded what Peter told him to record in his gospel, most likely, we were terrified. Uh, And so that's where they are right here in verse 32. Fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. Luke's pretty succinct in his description. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, So as they were parting, as Moses and Elijah were uh, separated from the scene, leaving Jesus alone, Jesus there alone on the stage, uh, very appropriate. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, Hebrews 1. First two verses of Hebrews, all the signs, all the promises, all the prophecies of the Old Testament are signified here in that being fulfilled in Christ, in the Lord Jesus. And Paul, Peter, excuse me, Peter, John, and James are there to watch. And Peter speaks without thinking. As I said, Mark says that Peter was terrified. Notice what, um, in Mark, it says he didn't know what to say, but that didn't stop him from talking. Here, what Luke says, not knowing what he had said. So, 
If we put those two together, he didn't know what to say, but when he did say what he said, he didn't know what he said. That's Peter, you know. Uh, But he liked this mountaintop experience, so he says there in verse 33, Master, it is good that we we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, again, not knowing what he said. He liked this. He was tired. Last week, Jesus talked about dying. Peter says, no way. We're not going to let that happen. I don't like. This is nice. Let's stay here on the mountaintop. We'll pitch a tent. We'll set up camp. We can kind of sit around the fire in the afterglow of this great experience. Um, And it's the same kind of inference Or we might infer from that what we did when he told Jesus, no, you're not going to die. Um, Peter says, let's just stay here, away with all the suffering talk. Let me just stop and say here for a second. Um, If you're from a if you have a Christian background that is something that in one sense diminishes the glory of God and emphasizes the humanity of Jesus, right? Almost to a point of overemphasis of the humanity and losing a sense of the deity of Christ. Maybe um, there's a tendency when you see that to come back and emphasize the deity and almost leave the humanity behind, right? Jesus is God, is he not? Jesus is going to accomplish what he's sent here to accomplish, right? But it's not without heavy temptation. He's still human. So, in all of his humanity, Jesus knows what waits for him at Jerusalem. And as Peter says, why don't we stay here? We'll make this memorial to Moses and Elijah and to you. And uh, in some fashion, Jesus is experiencing his pre-incarnate glory what it was like before the world existed, what it was like before he came to earth in that relationship with his heavenly father. And Peter's proposal could very well have tested Jesus' resolve. He's tempted just like us. And yet he's unable to yield. And he says, I must go on. I mean, is that not what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane? Being in agony. Well, why is Jesus in agony? He's God. He's also a man. We don't want to lose his humanity even here. And as Peter is, again, most likely being used of Satan to tempt Jesus, yeah, let's hang on a while. As he was speaking, this dark cloud comes. As Peter was speaking. He's not done yet. He's still talking about this retreat center he seems to be wanting to build. 
(laughs) Verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. So again, Luke is fitting together all of these um, passages, answering who is Jesus. Herod, here's what's on the streets. Who is this about whom I'm hearing these things? Who is this that is doing these things? And then Jesus says to his disciple, look, discount what's going on on the streets. Who do you say I am? It's what we saw last week. Who do you say Jesus is? And here in verse 35, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Here's the definitive answer of who the Lord Jesus is. This is my beloved son. If we put Matthew and Mark and Luke together, This is my beloved son, my chosen one, with whom I am well pleased. Now, listen to him. Peter and John are in this remarkable scene. Terrifying voice comes of the father, reminding us, reminding us of the baptism, right? Where he says, God says, speaks, this is my beloved son coming up out of the water. And the spirit comes down like a dove. And we have that uh, uh, coalescence, if you will, of the Trinity. The disciples were probably not at the baptism. Surely they've heard the story. But now they hear from this voice, God the Father. My beloved son, my chosen one with whom I am well pleased, listen to him, drawing from Old Testament background, my beloved son, we can turn to Psalm 2, uh, who will reign, the one who will reign over all the nations, my chosen one, as straight out of Isaiah, Isaiah 42, my chosen servant, and then we go to Isaiah 53 and we have the suffering servant uh, who gives his life for his people. And then listen to him. We go to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses preaches and says that God says another prophet like me is going to come. He will teach you what you need to know. Listen to Jesus. Listen to him. Uh, They were to accept. They were the command here from the Father. Accept what Jesus uh, tells you. In 21 and 22, when he says he's going to the cross, believe what he says about the cross. And then 23 through 27, where he says, uh, if you want to be a disciple, deny yourself and follow me. Consider the cost, he says. Listen to Jesus. He's going to tell you, you cannot be my disciple if you won't give it all to him. Listen to him. And then again, verse 45, they still don't get it yet. So we go from four men on the mountain to six men on the mountain to four men and a voice on the mountain. And then uh, 
verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. So now we have four men going down the mountain. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. So four men coming down the mountain. You know, when God pulls back uh, uh, the curtain and displays his majesty, whether it's his Shekinah glory in the Old Testament, whether it's glorious things in the New that is obviously God, people don't write a book. They don't go on a testimony tour. They fall on their faces before God. Uh, then the angels announced the birth to the shepherds. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. And the angels said to them, don't be afraid. When Jesus stills the storm, you remember just a few weeks ago, the disciples are terrified. They're not so much terrified. They know God controls the wind and the waves. They know he's the creator. But who is this in the boat with us who can stop it? who can demand that to happen. And it's the response here if we were to read Matthew. They fell on their faces. They were terrified. Jesus touched them. Rise and have no fear. And they descend down the mountain. And he gives specific instructions on the way down, again, that Luke doesn't record. Jesus was found alone and they kept silent. Well, they kept silent because on the way down, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Don't even tell the nine guys with us who, who didn't come up the mountain. Don't tell anybody. We've heard that before from Jesus. And imagine having experienced this and not being able to tell. Maybe that's why James, John, and Peter are the only ones, you know, you don't tell everything to everybody, right? You figure out who you can tell and, and, and they'll keep it. But Jesus tells them not to tell anyone and they obey the command we have it here from Luke. They kept silent and told no one. They did ask themselves, what does he mean about the resurrection? Uh, but they didn't ask. They were afraid to ask. So, uh, Peter's made it clear he doesn't understand yet. Let's build three, three shelters, you know, uh, putting Jesus on the level with Moses and Elijah in a sense. Uh, and so Jesus knows it's not good for you guys to go out and be broadcasting what's happening here. You still don't get it. In fact, you won't get it until after the resurrection. So, don't tell anyone. I'm just going to, that's the end. That's the story. We'll pick up next week and go from 37 to 50, and then uh, the next week uh, we'll observe the Lord's Supper and we'll look at feeding of the 5,000. But just, uh, I have three kind of conclusions we can draw. Um, I don't know how long you may have been a Christian. I mean, I do, some of you, but you know what I mean generally. I don't know how long the Christians have been Christians here. I don't know your Christology, your doctrine, what you believe about Jesus. If you're not a Christian, I don't know why you're not. The Lord has not convinced you. 
If you've been here very often, we've done our best. If you talk to people amongst us, they'll do their best. But we can have a lot of knowledge about who Jesus is. Maybe be genuinely converted, but no matter where we are in our walk with the Lord, there's always progress to be made in knowing who Christ is. What kind of a Christ it is that we believe in. And here's just the final thing I would say there. Let the Word define Him. Not what you want Him to be. Not what others say He is. Now you you listen to trusted people teach and talk about the Christ the Lord Jesus, but let the Word define Him. And if somebody says something to you that doesn't quite ring true, find in the Word why your spirit will not agree with that. Uh, A second idea, I want to be careful not to emphasize Peter too much. Because we want to, as we sing at the close, turn your eyes on Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. A second one, we can learn from Peter a couple of things. One, be slow to speak. Quick to hear. Um, I was reading about loose lips sink ships. That was a propaganda phrase in World War II to keep the American people quiet in case there were spies who had infiltrated, and then to make sure we just didn't talk too much. But it's also good, uh, a good adage for all time. Uh, Borum says, man is a talker. Yeah, I know some of us don't talk as much as others talk, but we se- we're separate from the rest of creation in that we talk, and the rest of creation doesn't talk. You know, talking, uh, Borum says, talking is often our business, sometimes our hobby, invariably our relaxation, frequently our duty, and almost always our delight. We're just talkers. We like to talk. And he says there's such a thing as silvery eloquence, but there's also such a thing as dignified silence. Uh, You know, those... uh, The people who tell everything they know have nothing to tell anybody. It's all gone. And the wise man always knows more than he ever tells. Think about if Peter and John and James had gone down the mountain, they gather with some people and they say, hey, guess what? We went up on the mountain and we we saw Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah. Um, you know, they were inviting doubt as to their credibility, derision of the, concerning the gospel, negatively influencing their ministry and their witness. Besides, they don't un, not, uh, not understanding what really happened. You know, a person who learns to speak when to speak and when to be silent, when to proclaim his experience and when to keep it close has mastered one of the highest 
arts of the Christian life. When to speak and when to be quiet. And Borum gives as an example the woman at the well. She became almost instantly wise. She goes into the city. She had this balance of revealing and yet um, restraining. He told me all that I ever did. But she doesn't say what she did. She didn't glory in her shame. She revealed what was needful to be revealed and concealed what needed to be concealed. And what was the result? People were led to the Savior. There was a revival in Samaria because of her wisdom. We might be effective if we use her as our model. Know when to speak and when not to speak. A last thing from Peter again, I'm sorry. But he's helpful to me because, uh, uh, well, you can make that implication or that connection. We learn from his suggestion of prolonging the glory experience, right? Um, This was meant to be a secret passing glimpse of the glory of Christ. Uh, An encouragement, uh, but not an ongoing experience, a temporary experience. So the question comes, are you ever guilty of being dissatisfied? Longing for a past joy or excitement that you can't quite recapture. Maybe your early Christian experience, all things were aglow. And now in the daily plodding of the Christian life, it just doesn't seem to be quite so much fun. You know, uh, I mentioned we used to sing a song when I was playing music. Whatever happened to the good old days when people really loved Jesus? Well, that's the good old days were not always such good old days. Uh, Nostalgia often uh, can lead to a not-so-helpful amnesia and just romanticizing the past. There's nothing wrong with desiring freshness. There's nothing wrong with desiring excitement in your life as you live faithful as a Christian. But God will often give these exciting mountaintop experiences to get us through the valleys. To get us over the hurdles, whether it be of our newfound faith, He'll have that I remember when I was first saved out of zero church background, the glory of that conversion as God saved me. And it was joyful. Never been able to capture some of that newness. But the experience that God brought me through has taken me through some of the low times. 
because I know God is faithful. Maybe you remember a particular spurt, growth spurt. You wonder why things can't be so alive. Or you were part of a Bible study or a fellowship group in the past and you've never been able to recapture that atmosphere again. These dry times, these daily plodding times through the Christian life where God is just as much at your side as He is when He takes you to the mountaintop or when He takes you to the valley. Where are you, God? Well, his answer, if he answered audibly anymore, he doesn't. But his answer would be, I haven't moved. Where are you? The dry times are not as enjoyable. But we don't want to take what God intends to be momentary, a momentary along the way encouragement and try to make it a permanent arrangement making an idol of our experience or feeling our experience or our feeling to the point that we prefer our experience over Jesus himself. So we're going to sing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. If you're not a Christian, I beg of you, I plead with you, be reconciled to God. There's no joy like it. And hard times will come, but He will sustain you through them and be honored in your life. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this experience on the mountain. That we might know that that glory that Christ has was always there. And for our sake, he veiled it. He humbled himself. He took on us the form of a servant. Help us to put our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes on Christ, our strength, our power, and our hope. In His name we pray. Amen.